0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Well Then. Today we are diving into an amazing conversation on meditation, mindfulness, and how those types of practices can actually increase your intuition and improve your love life and your relationships. And this conversation is with a really special guest who just so happens to be one of my meditation teachers. Those of you who have been following or listening to the podcast for a while know that I am a long-time advocate for mindfulness practices and have been practicing and even teaching meditation myself for the Past 10 plus years. But about two years ago, I learned a new style of meditation, at least new to me. It just so happens to be many thousands of years old. Is it a very powerful ancient tradition? And that is the practice of Vedic meditation. And as you'll learn in this episode, Vedic meditation is a mantra-based meditation that you actually have to learn from a teacher, but can then practice on your own. And there are so many beautiful, powerful teachings and ancient wisdom encapsulated in this practice. And my teacher, Susan Chen, who you'll hear from in just a moment, does such a great job of really summing that all up and translating and teaching it in a really powerful way. And so I'm excited to have her share with you today and for you guys to hear our conversation and I'm also excited to announce that Susan and I are actually leading a meditation and yoga retreat in Ojai, California in October, late October of this year, 2020. So 2022, oh my goodness. So depending on when you're listening, um, definitely head to the show notes and check out the link there so that you can learn more about this meditation and yoga retreat so that you can actually learn to practice Vedic meditation yourself. I'll be teaching lots of yoga classes. There's going to be so many beautiful opportunities for healing and discussions on love and lots of wonderful things. But before we dive into today's discussion, let me just tell you a little bit about Susan. She her background is so inspirational to me. We first got connected through a friend several years ago in more of a business capacity. And she actually has a long history of over 14 years working on Wall Street. And she started a company of her own, um, Susie's Grain Free Muffins, you might have heard of it. I was obsessed with them, so I was very excited to meet her for that reason as well. And, you know, throughout all of that, obviously working on Wall Street, running your own business, those are all very high stress environment things. And Susan ultimately turned to Vedic meditation to find resilience in the chaos. And for her, the practice was so effective in quickly eliminating stress and overwhelm in her life that she actually left the corporate world to study and teach full time. And in 2017, after two years of study and immersing herself in a training program in India with Tom Knowles, Susan was inducted as a Vedic meditation teacher in the highest order. And she now teaches and leads retreats in Austin, New York, L.A., and Hawaii. And I love whenever our paths get to cross in New York and L.A. She's just such a wonderful, light-filled person to be around. And I'm so excited for you all to learn from here today. So without further ado, let's dive right in. All right, Susan, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today. It is such a joy, Megan. This has been a long time coming, so I'm glad we've made the time for it. It really has. I was thinking about it, and I think the first time we spoke about having you on the podcast was back when we first met a few years ago. Um, the pre-COVID. Days. Pre-COVID, yeah, <laughs> which feels like a lifetime ago, not just a few years. And so much has it has unfolded and evolved since then, including me learning from you how to practice Vedic meditation. So it, this obviously ended up being in, in perfect timing. And I'm so excited to, to dive in with you today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I would love for you to just start out by sharing first a little bit about your story and your kind of personal and professional life. I find it so fascinating, your background and how you came into the world of um, Vedic knowledge and Vedic meditation. And I I think that other people will find it equally as fascinating.
1: Sure. Um, You know, it's so interesting because I was just speaking with a friend yesterday about how as we go through our different chapters of our lives, sometimes we can look back and they can feel like lifetimes though, as if we've had, you know, rebirth after rebirth after rebirth um, through the different chapters and iterations of, you know, what it is that we're becoming. And so, you know, sometimes when people ask me this question, it, um it's a real trip because it's not only talking about the last, you know, 15 years of my journey, uh, but really almost it feels like a few lifetimes worth of experiences. I don't know if you feel that way too sometimes.
0: Oh my gosh, I feel that way all the time. And I was actually thinking about that that exact idea today and how many lifetimes I've lived in, in a short, <laughs> relatively short amount of, of physical life. But I feel the yeah. same way about hearing your story. I'm like, wow, how did you fit so much in <laughs> into that amount of time? It's incredible.
1: Yeah, and so I guess a good place to start would be... Um, you know, I think uh, my journey into, uh, into the meditation world probably started off um, like a lot of others out there. Um, you know, after school and after graduating from university, I moved to New York City, um, doing what a lot of people are doing, which was to cut my professional teeth, if you will, I'm working on Wall Street at a major investment bank um, based in New York City. And I began to go through the motions as many young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young professionals do and really began to find my own rhythm and find my own um, place as uh, a young Asian woman out there in Wall Street. And what began to happen is that as my success professionally grew, something Funny was also happening internally because all of these things that I thought was supposed to make me happy, right? Like, you know, getting your first big bonus check or, you know, paying off your student loans or, you know, moving into that one apartment where you don't have to share with a roommate anymore, you know. (laughs) In New York City, that's a pretty that's a huge deal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> in, your,
1: in your 20s. Um, and so, even though I was starting to check all these things off the list that I thought was just going to make me more and more and more happy, what I found out was, and what I was experiencing, that that hit of happiness would come and then it would go. And then it would be, you know, it would be replaced by, you know, a gap of yearning about what's next. And so that started to really. Um, make me wonder about what it was that we were all chasing day in and day out. And so even in my early 20s, I started doing a lot of exploration um, in terms of, you know, taking a look at yogic practices, going away on yoga retreats, um, beginning to practice meditation. Now the type of meditation I practiced back then now is called mindfulness meditation. Um, But back then it was more along the lines of, you know, some Zen Buddhist and Tibetan Buddhist traditions. And so I think I've had this yearning of like, wait a second, you know, it was like, there was some cognitive dissonance, even from my early twenties, like I'm supposed to be happy right now, but instead of being happy, I'm actually just, you know, I've just set that mile marker down. (laughs) (laughs) for that next thing that I'm supposed to be wanting in my life. Because, you know, this unsatiable search for happiness, when you're looking for it outside yourself becomes really, really apparent. And I think for a lot of us, you know, we either just block that, you know, dissonance away, or, you know, we really try and look to explore it. And so I think I went back and forth for quite a few years of just sort of like, You know, closing my eyes and pretending that I was happy, Um, but after a little while, um, I started to realize that I couldn't ignore it because, in addition to continuing continuing to search for happiness, I was also beginning to um, feel quite a lot of you know anxiety and overwhelm and fatigue um, in my life as well. And um, what I started to realize was that you know this lifestyle of always chasing that happiness either in the job or in the relationships or in that you know New York City lifestyle um, was causing you know my body to be quite overworked and fatigued. And so as I was taking a look into you know my career and my lifestyle in New York, it started to be a little bit unsustainable. and what that looked like for me was, uh, you know, some unsustainable personal relationships, um, and a really uh, imbalanced work, uh, work-life balance that started to really wreak havoc, um, you know, on my nervous system, as well as um, in my general mood and attitude towards life. And so what did I do? I packed up, <laughs> And decided to leave New York because certainly, you know, um, at that time in my life, I still really wasn't totally sure and confident of where this lack of happiness came from. So I thought to myself, well, I'm not happy in New York. Certainly, I could go find happiness out there in the world somewhere else. <laughs> and so then I wound up spending a few years in Asia um, working there and really uh, diving into no pun intended, um, but diving into all sorts of crazy, you know life adventures, including lots and lots of scuba diving, including lots and lots of mountain um, mountaineering and, um, and summit hiking. And when I look back on all of that, it's so funny because I was like, wow, I was searching high and low for moments of happiness and to escape the anxiety, but it didn't actually matter whether I was (laughs) tens of thousands of feet up in the air or, you know, hundreds of feet below water, that anxiety was always following me. And so what wound up happening was I took a tour of the world for a few years, you know, the financial crisis wound up happening as well. Um, And a few big life experiences wound up shaking me into the realization that I really needed to find a grounding device um, that could really help me in my day-to-day to discover what that discomfort was, you know, deep inside myself. And so After I did my time in Asia and came back to New York, um, you know, still trying a bunch of different things under the sun to feel better, um, a friend introduced me to Vedic meditation and for the first time since as long as I can remember, I mean, I wanted to say since I was a child, but even in my childhood, I think I had... um, you know the tendency to feel really really quite nervous um, in my body so in the first time probably ever that i could remember i started to feel moments of bliss that wound up extending into hours of bliss that wound up extending into days and weeks of feeling well and grounded and settled and I kind of knew that from the first couple of days of you know, practicing this very specific style of meditation that I wouldn't go another day in my life without practicing it. And you know, as the story goes, you know, once you really begin to fall in love with such a transformative practice, um, there, there, it, it becomes very, very apparent that you know, you wanna do anything and everything that you can do to help people experience the same thing. And so after a little bit of resistance, after my teacher, you know, had suggested that I become a meditation teacher, I decided to take that leap of faith and leave my Wall Street job and, you know, have my own um, eat pray love moment in India. And now I teach Vedic meditation full-time around the US.
0: First of all, I mean, talk about fitting so much into a small amount of time. I feel like I've heard your versions of your story and snippets and chapters of your story, you know, many times now. And I I didn't know that you had the the scuba diving, mountaineering <laughs> exploration chapter in Asia. That is so cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the scuba diving, mountaineering chapter, we've had the, uh, you know, the the chapter of, you know, looking for, you know, peace in, you know, lots of, you know, pharmaceutical drugs and, uh, you know, club drugs. We've had diving into, <laughs> ashram life in upstate new york there are lots and lots of different chapters of my life and it's actually really funny because you know what we see through all of our endeavors right whether it's you know our own personal journeys or the journeys of our friends and loved ones is there's a common theme between all of it right whether or not we want to we want to um identify it as destructive, right? Or addictive, or pleasure seeking, or thrill seeking, all of what it is that we're all up to is looking for greater and greater states of happiness. Mm -hmm. And we all think that, you know, maybe we're the ones who know best. And if we just try enough Um, you know, we experiment on our own, that we really try and, and find that greater experience. And so, you know, when I, when I teach students, and when I talk to others who, you know, share about what they've been doing in their life, you know, I really have um, so much love and empathy for everybody's journey, because, you know, given all of the different, you know, births and rebirths that I've had and all the variety of experiences that I've had, you know, some would label some of them destructive, some of them would label them, you know, maybe even a little, I don't know, too carefree or hedonistic. It was all in the effort of feeling better or wanting to feel better than how I was feeling at that moment and who can't, you know, relate to that. And, you know, I think it's this really interesting thing of, you know, our human experience, which is, you know, do we have the right tools to begin to find that happiness? You know, if we are looking for happiness in places outside of ourselves, and not finding it, how are we learning those lessons? Are we learning those lessons? Or are we repeating those lessons over and over again? And, you know, it's this type of, storytelling and, you know, sharing of personal stories that I really like to um, include in, in my teachings and in my interactions with people, because I do think that it does help reframe a lot of what it is that we do in our life from feeling, you know, guilty for it or shameful or, oh, that's a time of my life that I don't want to talk about <laughs> or, ooh that's a relationship I wish no one knew about. <laughs> to you know what like we're all really trying our best to get happy and you know what are those tools that we have what's working what's not working
0: yeah and that's what I love so much about all the chapters of your story is that and, and any story like it is that it's such a clear barometer of being able to look at okay before these practices you had that life that maybe a lot of people might've thought was very successful on the outside. Like you had so much going for you and this really cool lifestyle in New York and career and all the things, but you didn't have that happiness or fulfillment on the inside. And you know, at the time you might've thought like, okay, career is the thing that's supposed to make make me happy. Success is the thing that's supposed to make me happy. And so many of us go down that path And then to realize that it's not and to go on the journey of discovery and finally finding this thing that gives you access to that experience of bliss and that inner peace and inner calm. So that now, like I look at your life and I'm still like, wow, on the outside, so successful, amazing, beautiful, happy. And I also know that on the inside, you have such that amazing level of fulfillment and and bliss and happiness, which is just so wonderful. And that's, I think, what we all strive for, what we all want.
1: Yeah. And the, um, and thank you for that, Megan. And, you know, the phenomenology that we like to use, um, you know, within the Vedic meditation tradition is this whole idea of bliss plus, right? Mm. It's like, well, if you're able to really find and culture that inner foundation of bliss and fulfillment, you know, that feeling of, everything is going to be all right, everything is all right, everyone is all right, that feeling of equanimity, and you take that out into your everyday life, then you're no longer that needy person who's looking to get happy or looking to get fulfilled by any endeavor or activity or conversation that you're engaged in, right? Because you are the fulfillment field, you are the field of happiness, going out to look for the need of the time of of the day. And so if we were all to be able to culture that foundation of bliss, then this world would really feel energetically like a very different place. And so, you know, a lot of people ask me, (laughs) so like, you know, clearly, there must be things that happen in your life that you're not you're not thrilled about it's like of course you know we're humans out there active in the world there are plenty of things that happen that don't quotes and quotes go you know the way in which I expected you know you might say it didn't go my way but it didn't go the way that I expected but you know I'm bliss plus that thing that you know didn't didn't go as expected it wasn't that you know I could only feel blissful if it went my way. And now that it didn't go my way, <laughs> my foundation is, you know, annoyance and frustration and anger. It's when we start with that idea of bliss plus, then we, everything else out in the world is additive to our day. And so it allows us to adapt to changes of expectation, to changes in life. And it really begins to build this big, big layer of perspective of, you know, everything is happening for me. Everything is happening for greater evolution. And when we can embrace that from the field of fulfillment and bliss, life seems to go a lot easier and smoother in that way.
0: Yeah. And at bare minimum, like that alone is such a massive gift. And has been. I've seen that that transformation in my own life. Even recently, I've been having some um, issues with a car that I just bought a few months ago when I when I moved back here to Seattle. And um, some of my friends are like, "Oh my gosh, aren't you so frustrated that like this new car? You just have to keep getting it taken in and all the things." And I'm my response has been, "Yeah, not really. I'm kind of just like <laughs> excited to see how it's going to unfold in the best way for me." Like it's not going to be a big deal. I'm not really that worried about it. And I can look back on like old me <laughs> and say, she certainly would have been very stressed out and very anxious. And Absolutely. Just, yeah. Like so caught up in those minute details and making them such a big deal and, and getting taken out of bliss.
1: And had, have you found that change specifically um, after learning Vedic meditation?
0: I definitely think that's been a huge part of it. I've been, um, practicing for just about a year now. I think this like right around this week is, is my one year anniversary. Happy meditation (laughs) anniversary. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's funny because it feels like longer than that. Like it feels like, oh no, this has been a staple in my, in my toolbox for a while now, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's just been a year. And, um, yeah, a lot has happened in the last year. I know you know <laughs> about, mm-hmm. um, things that have been going on in my life with health and move and all the things, but I honestly feel like it's actually been one of the greatest years of my life so far. And yeah, I don't, yeah, I look at it through a much more blissful lens. And I think this, this practice has been, yeah, such a gift for, Um, my overall perspective on the world and on life and myself and all the things.
1: Yeah. And, you know, perspective is really what it's all about, right? Mm -hmm. If you take a look at anyone that we've um, come into contact with in our life that we've really admired and respected and valued their, their wisdom. The one commonality that we can all draw on is that that person or those people that we valued in our life have all had great perspective, right? And there's so many different ways of thinking about perspective, but for me, it's, um, it's really being able to see, obviously, the bigger picture of things, right? And from the Vedic worldview, it's all about, you know, understanding and knowing through direct experience, that evolution is all that's ever happening for all of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the beginning days, you know, when we're not you know, so sure of that when you hear it, and you're like, oh, that sounds like a nice little thing. You, <laughs> you know, somebody might write to you when you're having a bad day, or it might look nice on a little like, you know, greeting card to make you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if we were to all look back on some of the most trying times in our life, and we can do it right now, you know, just do a really quick mental scan, right? In the moments that you felt were those moments that brought you to your knees and in the moments when you feel like, I just don't know how I'm going to find a way out. Those were always the pivotal moments that got us to our next growth and phase of our journey and our, and our personal growth and evolution. So at, it doesn't take away from at that time, it didn't feel great, but you know, what we know is that those are the pivot points for our transformation. And that is what perspective is all about, being able to look back to say, wow, even in that moment when it didn't feel evolutionary at all, and it felt Mm -hmm. like the universe is playing a big cosmic gotcha, you know, um, it actually served a really, really great purpose. And I think for those who Do have access to tools like Vedic meditation that can, you know, release the stress so we can be in the present moment and appreciate these moments. um, It it really can propel our acceleration into fulfilling, you know, our greatest purpose in life because you know there's this great saying um, that our uh, my teacher's teacher Maharishi Mahesh Yogi used to say was he said you know you can go along with evolution as a willing participant or you can get dragged mm. <laughs> on the way you know towards evolution you know evolution is going to happen anyways to what extent are we resisting it and needing to learn the same lessons over and over again until you know we get we get on with the program and you know from the perspective of the universe or nature you know, she's like, I have all the time in the world, Susan, you know, you keep on making those (laughs) mistakes. It's absolutely okay. If you need to do it your way a few times, (laughs) I'm just going to keep on gently dragging you towards that inevitable outcome anyways. And so, you know, there's no punitive aspect to any of this. It's very playful. It's very fun, but you know, I know that the one thing we connect on personally is, you know, we love diving into some of these, you know, nuances of, of growth and evolution and introspection. And what I find is that, you know, paired with a meditation program like Vedic Meditation, where you can start to really feel that bliss, that sustainable feeling of bliss on the inside that once we start to like figure out how it is that these laws of nature work and how we can work with these laws of nature, you know, things and hiccups, like, you know, the cars that take more more of our attention than we would like (laughs) um, start to feel like, hey, it's all right, you know, maybe all of this work with the car is putting me in contact with who I should be in contact with out there in the world, who knows what doors will be opening up because of these extra conversations that I'm having
0: yeah and I love that perspective just because if for nothing else it feels so much better to think like yeah who knows like the unknown has an infinite number of possibilities and so many good ones exist that that could become my reality if I just stay open and um yeah I I I love taking that outlook into the world and you've already shared so many um I think wonderful principles of of Vedic knowledge. I'm just thinking for anybody who's maybe unfamiliar with what Vedic meditation is um, or Vedic knowledge in general. I've shared a little bit on the podcast so far. So for regular listeners, I think they're aware that it's like, you know, roughly it's a, it's a mantra based meditation, and um, I think that might be the extent of it. Uh-huh. And some people might hear Vedic the word Vedic and think like, Oh, is it like Ayurveda? So can you just give us like a kind of foundation? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. We just dove straight in. I know. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Vedic meditation is um, a form of meditation that comes from Veda, which is the Sanskrit word for knowledge. And so Veda is approximately a 5,000 year old body of ancient knowledge that comes from the land that we now call India. But what's very important to um, distinguish is that Vedic knowledge is not only Indian knowledge, it's not only knowledge that's accessible, you know, from Um, the great masters from the last 5,000 years. It just so happens that Indian culture and society and the people of India have been incredibly good at preserving this knowledge because what Veda shares with us are universal truths about the laws of nature and how we can live in the best and most optimal attunement with these laws of nature. And what Veda says is that the seed form of all of the knowledge of the laws of nature actually resides within each and every one of us in seed form in our own awareness and consciousness state, meaning that at any given time, everybody's birthright is the ability to cognize and recognize all of these beautiful truths about the world to the extent that you know we're present and clear in mind and um, feeling as as light and stress-free as possible to be able to tune in and tap into these laws of nature. So Vedic knowledge is one that has been preserved with with great purity and with great accuracy over the years. And this body of knowledge of Veda spans everything from the knowledge of yoga asana, From where, you know, here in the West, we have, you know, all these different branches of different types of yoga, like, you know, Hatha Yoga, Kriya Yoga, um, Bhakti Yoga, Nishkam Karma Yoga, all of these styles of yoga, um, and all the way to Ayurveda, which is the Vedic science of health and wellness, which I know that you are um, diving deeply into and have a great appreciation for And Vedic knowledge also spans to, you know, um, warfare and conflict, architecture, sound, music, culture. It's really a very comprehensive um, body of knowledge. And so within that, it also teaches us a very specific type of meditation, which is a mantra based meditation, as you had mentioned. And there are lots of different types of mantras that you can find within Veda, but in Vedic meditation are mantra that we use is called a Bija mantra. Bija in Sanskrit, B-I-J-A is a seed form mantra, meaning that when you begin to repeat it in your simplest form of awareness with your eyes closed, it begins to naturally bring your mind into a quieter and quieter and more silent state. So most of our waking days, what we do is we float towards the top of that high, shallow layer of activity within our minds where, you know, we have the to-do list and, you know, the shopping list for for whole foods and (laughs) thinking about the people that we should be calling back, the people we don't want to be calling back. Um, And what begins to happen is that if we engage the mind in only that very narrow band of awareness, the mind... It tends to get very, very tired. It tends to get overworked. And it begins to feel a little bit frazzled and using up all of its energy for those shallow shallower states of activity. And so there's a layer of our mind, which is quiet and serene and um, and calm and peaceful. And it is available to us if we had the techniques and tools to be able to really accessed it. And this is where Vedic meditation comes in. That mantra acts as a really beautiful and easy handrail to take you from those more superficial layers of thinking into that deep, quiet state where we step completely beyond our thinking mind and can experience that pure silent, pure awareness and pure consciousness for moments inside our meditation. And what's really cool about Vedic meditation is, you know, it's a pretty groovy experience, right? Mm -hmm. When you're inside and, you know, not being completely owned, right, and handled by all of, you know, the, the thoughts of, you know, demands and actions and things you have to do in your day. But at the same time, when your mind is getting a nice little delicious dive into that rested state, your body is also Resting so deeply that, in, that an entire lifetime's worth of stresses are getting removed and dislodged and purified from the physiology. And this is why we like to call Vedic meditation like a real two for practice. <laughs> it's a two for it's a two for one, because it feels really nice inside meditation because you're getting a nice break from the day but you're also recharging your body from the inside out such that the other 23 and a half hours of the day that you're not meditating begin to feel really upgraded and really strong and resilient and adaptable. So, you know, when I came to Vedic meditation, the main reasons that I wanted to get into this practice was because I was having a really hard time sleeping at night, you know, um, just feel waking up in the middle of the night, feeling very, very anxious. Sometimes I knew exactly why I felt anxious. And other times I just wanted to go back to sleep and was like, there's no good reason why I'm awake right now. (laughs) Like life is supposed to be perfect. you know." (laughs) And also because I was really struggling with feeling like I could show up as my authentic self um, in, in romantic relationships. It was like, I knew totally how to behave and be myself and really like command the room authentically, you know, in my professional career. But like, you know, once I left my corporate job on wall street, I would go back to whoever it was that I was with. It really, I thought it was the person I was with, but it was like really always just me.
0: (laughs) Isn't it funny how that works? I know.
1: (laughs) And I would be like this little mouse. I'd be like, oh, whatever this person wants me to be, I'm just mm. going to be because, you know, like I'm the one who's adaptable. You know, I'm I'm the one who's just this easygoing gal. And because yeah. I'm easygoing, I'm not supposed to be showing anyone my preferences or how it is that I feel. But obviously that didn't feel authentic to me because, I mean, who would who would be able to live with themselves, you know, basically showing up for another person in that way. And so, you know, this kind of weird Jekyll and Hyde personality thing that was going on in my life was just driving me crazy, totally driving me crazy. And so I was like, all right, so this meditation thing is supposed to make me feel happy. Sure. It should, (laughs) it can only benefit my, my personal relationships. And it absolutely did. And what we find with, those who come to Vedic meditation is that it's not like magic that it seems to work for everybody, right? (laughs) But the reason it does work for everyone is a very simple and logical explanation, which is that Vedic meditation begins to balance out any imbalances that are currently going on in your mind, as well as in your body, because in fact, As you know, more than, you know, most out there, Megan, you know, the mind and body are one system. It's one thing. You know, we grow up thinking it's two completely separate things, um, but the mind and body are, are, are are so connected that you can't be dealing with one without dealing with the other. And so you know, if you're coming and feeling like you have anger issues, or you're coming and you feel like you're a little mouse like me, who couldn't say anything to their partners. (laughs) I don't know what I want for dinner. Don't ask me whatever you want, right? (laughs) Um, Or, or if you're coming, because, um, you know, you have migraines, which was another huge thing that um, I really wanted to solve, or because you have insomnia, whatever it is, you know, that you're feeling imbalanced, in your life, the reason we we feel imbalanced is because of stress accumulation that's expressing itself in that imbalance. Mm-hmm. And so Vedic meditation basically says, right? You know, we can try and deal with the imbalances, but why don't we just get to the root of all these imbalances and remove all the imbalances altogether through, you know, treating the root cause of the problem. And I know
0: in your healing journey, this has been, you know, a big shift, right? It's like, yeah. Oh yeah. It's been huge. And that was one of the main reasons I came to you to learn the practice was because it was at the time where I was like deep in the midst of navigating mystery chronic illness before I had received a a diagnosis and was just like what my body's going haywire like what is happening but at at bare minimum I know there is this strong mind-body connection and I know that you know starting with the mind can absolutely help to at least alleviate some of what's going on in my body absolutely it certainly did
1: (laughs) yeah you know and Vedic meditation says you know mind-body a very very good start let's do one better. Let's talk about consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? And so consciousness is, you know, this overarching um, idea that each one of us has a repertoire of behaviors that's available to us at any given time, right? Because that's really when we boil down, um, when we get down to like brass tacks of what consciousness is, it's repertoire of behavior, And so in a very stress consciousness, meaning that if you've gone through life having, you know, some overwhelming, some level of overwhelming experiences in which you did not successfully adapt to that demand at that time, which is for most of us, you know, that's how we handle a lot of things that happen in our life. Then we begin to Um, the body begins to keep score, it begins to record some of these stress memories, and it holds on to them, you know, not because, you know, (laughs) our body wants to make our life difficult. But it's actually a survival mechanism that we've cultured over the course of the last, you know, hundreds of 1000s of years to keep us safe. Basically, you know, the body's like, okay, I got really stressed at this one time. So let me try and remember as much of what's happening right now. So the next time I get a whiff of a similar thing happening, let me try and get ahead of it and, you know, go launch into a stress response or a fight or flight so I can protect this better because apparently I didn't do a great job doing that the first time. And so it's all with great um. It's, it's a great idea and it's very relevant when we're in physical danger. But when we're in this modern day of psychological, you know, um, demands, it's not a relevant response to the need of the time. And so what happens is we begin to accumulate all of the stress in our body. And then our mind begins to get crowded and our consciousness begins to get really, really murky, right? And it's as if these stressors cause these horse blinders, on our consciousness state and our repertoire of behavior begins to get more and more and more narrow. And this is how it shows up in our life, right? You know, we have this huge brain that has, you know, almost a trillion cells. I think the last time I looked at like 86 billion brains, you know, cells in our brain that should be used for creativity <laughs> for wonderful cognitions for you know looking for unity out there in the world but instead you know we clog it up with all of these potential stressors and then the brain starts to use all that brain's computing power to be processing you know stress memories day in and day out and so that filter you know, from which our consciousness begins to operate through is one that's very, very, very stressed. And so let's say that we're dealing with the symptoms and the imbalances, right? It's like, oh, you know, like I have a little bit of insomnia or I have some of these digestive issues, which are, as you know, classic symptoms of somebody whose, you know, nervous system and physiological systems are in, you know, in stress, in, in, in a heightened stress response and so maybe we'll go see a doctor for you know we'll, for our digestive issues and then we'll go see a neurologist for our migraines and then we'll go see a sleep specialist for the sleep and they might be able to prescribe you medication right whether it's you know um, from a pharmacological perspective or a natural perspective but if consciousness is still stressed and we're not dealing with the stress consciousness is going to continue to print out the same Physiological response day after day after day, and so I think this is why for you know those who are really looking for that um, a big part of a wholesale solution is you know let's bring let's bring meditation in here so we can start to upgrade that consciousness repertoire so that stress can start to you know, find, take a back seat in our lives and, uh, and, you know, ultimately get eliminated. And then that consciousness state is free to heal. It's free to find balance and it's free to find unity out there
0: in the world. Absolutely. And I love that, that what happens as you do begin to clear away the layers and residue of stress and, and create the opportunity for consciousness to heal and to connect with all that's out there in the world. There's this concept that was something that you had talked about the very first time we met when we shared tea in your New York Mm -hmm. apartment that really stuck with me and I think was another one of the main reasons I was so drawn to learn Vedic meditation and that's the idea of charm Mm -hmm. that you talk about which I would love you to share more about because it's such a um, compelling idea that the more we clear away stress the more that we have access to the bliss that you've been talking about, but also access to this level of consciousness that guides us on a path where we can, almost like we can trust, like if we follow it, every step we take is 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 like divinely guided and inspired and like just- Uh, Yeah, I feel like there's such a a liberation and excitement to that. So can you talk a little bit more about the concept of charm? Yes, absolutely. So,
1: you know, charm is a word um, that you will, that we often talk about in our Vedic meditation tradition. And it's kind of like um, it's kind of like this funny word where it's almost a little bit hard to define what it is. You know, um, when we talk about charm, we talk about that, you know, deep intuition within our within our consciousness state that begins to guide from the level and the foundation of bliss and fulfillment. You know, what we should be doing at any given time. And so perhaps the easiest way to talk about it is to talk about when we don't follow charm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, you know, how I had lived my life um, for so long, right? In terms of like over intellectualizing everything that I needed to do. Like I was, I was basically like, you know, that nightmare friend that would always be asking you for your advice, but like never taking it. <laughs> 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 and then you would get together with your other friends and find out that like I had also asked your dozen other mutual friends the same question and also <laughs> didn't take their advice um, but it, I was always in like informa- information gathering mode and mm. trying to keep all my options open and you know wow Susan you've made so many mistakes in the past you know clearly you're doing something wrong because, you know, you're probably going to die with like, you know, someone's going to find you in your apartment when you're 80 years old with like 12 cats and, and, you know, a stack of books or something like that. And so I was really, really scared of making wrong decisions. And again, not so much in my, you know, in my professional life, because I felt like I knew, I like knew how to handle that, but really in, you know, relationships with family and friends and and romantic partners and all that stuff. And so I found myself, you know, really over-intellectualizing everything that, that was basically going on in my mind. And after I learned to meditate, I started to find that, you know, that whole, like, I should be doing this, maybe I should be doing that. All of that just kind of cleared away. And there was a lot of spaciousness in my mind and in my consciousness state, because as the stress wears away, you know, we don't spend so much of our computing power, you know, reviewing and regretting the past and rehearsing the future anymore. We're just kind of like open to whatever begins, whatever is happening at that moment. And what we know is that, you know, looking in the present moment for seeds of the future is a way more accurate and joyful and blissful experience of life than continuing to speculate about what's going to happen in the future. And that's Mm -hmm. what stress does, you know, stress keeps us in speculation mode. And so what begins to happen is as your present moment begins to open up and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not running out of time anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I, maybe I won't be dying an old lady. I don't even care if I die an old, (laughs) you know, an old lady who with my dozen cats anymore, you're just kind of living in the moment. Right. And we know that, you know, you hear all these, these quotes on Instagram that talk about living in the moment, but what this really means is keeping your capacity open to seeing what the present moment has to offer you because the present moment is the future in the making everything that's about to happen in the future has its seeds right now in the present moment. And so what begins to happen is you'll start to find that as you begin to wear away the stress. And as I did, you know, through practicing Vedic meditation, I started to feel these like very pure And by pure, I mean, just like very strong, unambiguous desires begin to bubble up. And, you know, these desires sometimes went completely against my intellect, right? Like, oh, you know, I just think it would be a great thing to take a year off of my job. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, like, you know, premeditating Susan, never in a million years would I have thought that would have been possible, right? But it's like, Oh just I just really want to be a teacher you know and even small things like you know what I don't think I'm actually going to take the subway today I think I'm going to walk home it's like oh my gosh it's new york city it's you know 25 degrees outside <laughs> <laughs> why is it that you want to walk home and so you know you find your intellect because we have these old sticky habits of analyzing and overanalyzing everything but In the present moment, you start to have these very, very strong desires. And this is what we would call charm, you know, that pure, unadulterated you know, desire that comes straight from the field of bliss, that field of being that pure silent state that we touch upon, you know, in every single meditation practice, what begins to happen is that awareness state begins to become your backdrop of life. So (laughs) your backdrop of life is no longer this low grade imbalance, whatever it is you're feeling anxiety, fear, anger, sadness, you know, um you know roller coaster of emotions now the backdrop of the experience of life is like equanimity and bliss and so when would that those desires begin to happen if we act on the desires that is us following charm and the reason in which we stop you know over obsessing and overthinking about why it is that we want these desires is because our personal um our personal role in our personal experience of life is starting to get more and more and more in tune with the patterns and the impulses of nature and where nature is guiding us. And what the Vedic worldview says is that individual nature and, and individual desires and cosmic desires are actually two sides of the same coin because we as individuals are outlets for universal intent. Now, if the physiology is really caked with stress accumulation and still thinking about, you know, uh, the, you know, the regrets of the past, we're going to start to continue to flood our thinking with lots and lots of stressful processing instead of this, you know, pure nectar of charm and desire. And so this is why, you know, this idea of charm is a good foundational start, but, it can really feel like we can maximize it if we're in a pattern and a routine of c- consistently and with regularity releasing stress from the physiology. Because that's really how we begin to you know, fine tune our alignment with nature and really begin to follow charm. And the whole idea behind charm, right, is that when we follow charm, then again, like you said, you know, everything begins to fall into place. We begin to find that there are no, you know, coincidences, right? They're only, you know, coincidences that were divinely timed. We find that there are no, no real, like, mistakes that are ever made, but, you know, things that... Um, opportunities that take us to different places at different times and what we find is that you know following charm in as simple or as seemingly small decisions like should I walk down this street (laughs) Mm -hmm. or should I walk down the other street you know should I set my alarm this morning or should I sleep in all of these things we don't need to second guess ourselves anymore because we know that it's big self, or you, we can call it the universe, or big nature, driving all of these desires that we have in our life. And this has probably been one of my biggest learnings in the eight years that I've been practicing meditation: is that you know intuition gets louder and stronger. And I can say, and I wouldn't even have been able to say this. I don't think two or three, even three years ago, but I can, you know, confidently say it now that um, there are very, very rare moments in which I second guess anything, yeah. you know, anything that comes up, you know, I don't even say like, I was thinking this, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, a thought came, and I don't know why this thought is coming. And I don't know why this desire is coming. But let's just go. Let's get rid of the desire and just go do it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and to see what's happening. And we could begin to use the mind as a really great um historian to say, oh yeah. So over the course of the last week, all of these things that didn't make you know too much intellectual sense. You know, you did that. And then what 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 came out of it? Oh, some cool quotes, unquote, synchronicity happened in my life. And it's like, well, if you're following charm, that's what was meant to happen. Anyway, there's not too much synchronicity. And so it begins to really build that confidence of certainty in our life. And to know that, you know, let's say that, you know, I really followed charm and wanted to, let's say, go on a date with this guy. Right. And you know, let's say that, you know, you went on a few good dates, but it ultimately didn't work out. We don't want to say, man, charm really led me down a path where it didn't work out. (laughs) So, you know, I can't be trusted to follow my charm, right? Like you said, how many doors were open that wouldn't have been opened if you hadn't said yes to, you know, that particular opportunity? What were the lessons that we learned through that opportunity? You know, it's, there's, there's no, we begin to remove this element of, oh, I've done something wrong, which I don't know about you, but I lived for most of my 20s and half of my 30s. Just, you know, completely scared to make a mistake because oh yeah. I always felt like I was I was about to mess something up in my life.
0: Yeah, same. I was always looking for like the ways that I did things wrong and how I could do things right and like just was so attached to trying to control every detail of my life and how I planned it and It's not a very fun way to live.
1: (laughs) It's not. And, you know, what I've come to really appreciate and, you know, I think back on the way I used to be and I just go back, you know, revisit my former self and give that version of Susan like a really, really big hug
0: yeah,
1: (laughs) and like a big old hug because that was our best attempt at looking for happiness through certainty and security. Yeah. You know, and that's okay it's okay. You know, that's part of the journey and, you know, it's all happening. So we can talk about it right now for everyone who's listening, who might be going through that same thing.
0: Absolutely. And I love the, the example that you shared in the context of dating too, because you have the ability to, or we have the ability to look at all the experiences that show up for us as something that we must have needed in some form or capacity in that moment. Like the couple dates didn't work out with that guy but maybe you learned something that's actually really important to you in terms mm-hmm. of qualities in a partner or a dynamic in a relationship that you desire and so while that person wasn't your person or didn't lead to a, you know a longer term relationship it helped clarify for you what you do want and that is just as valuable
1: absolutely and i think that the greatest mirror for relationships at least for me, and I don't know if you feel the same, is, you know, to what extent was I counting on this relationship to make me happy? Yeah, yep. (laughs) (laughs) To what extent did I want this to work out so much? Because I thought that being in a relationship would bring me happiness on the other side, right? You know, when we feel fulfilled as our baseline, You know, when we experience that bliss plus phenomenon that we were talking about earlier in our conversation, and we bring that to the table of a relationship, we can actually love harder. You know, we can love even more unconditionally. We can even, you know, and I think most importantly, especially for you know, the people pleasers out who are (laughs) your people pleaser listeners who are out there, because I was certainly one of them. It actually (laughs) allows us to like really fully evaluate what's going on in the situation. Because like the MO is not I need to stay in this relationship, because that's what's going to make me happy. It's like, wait, I'm already happy. Let's figure out if like this relationship is meeting what it is that, you know, I'm looking for right now in a
0: partner. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, it's so vital. And even as we've been talking, I've kind of had this, uh, like aha moment where over the last year or even really the last six months, I've personally experienced a a big transformation in my own life when it comes to relationships and dating and, um, you know, have, have been single for quite a while. And, for a while was relating to it. Like, yeah, I'm cool on my own and I I like my life and I'm happy being single. And I can like say that I'm confident, but there was always this underlying program of like, yeah, but I still really want a relationship. And there's still this like secret timeline in my mind that like, I think I need to have met somebody by this date in order to be fulfilled in order to be happy. And over the course of the last six months to a year, I had this experience where I just all of a sudden realized like oh wow I don't feel that way I used to feel anymore I actually like not only am I not seeking a relationship I'm so content with my life and just at peace and experiencing the bliss of my life that I It's not that I don't want one. It's that I trust that at some point in my life that that will be a part of some chapter of my future. So I'm I'm just so in the present moment that I'm really able to embrace what is here now. And like you said earlier, that this will be the seeds of, of what comes later anyways. So it takes the pressure off of any person I meet needing to be the one of me needing to make them into something that they might not be. And it's been a really liberating experience. And I hadn't connected it to my meditation practice until Mm -hmm. hearing you share some of the things you shared. I'm like, oh, yeah, that timeline checks out. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, you know, I think that when you do come to um, the next, you know, very high deserving partner that you meet is, you know, like the the things that will... I'll bet you (laughs) if I look into the crystal ball, the things in which you'll use um, to evaluate whether or not it's a good fit, it's going to be really, really different this time around. Right. Because it's like, you know, I remember I was in a relationship and I was turning 30. And I don't know if you have any, you know, uh, male listeners on your podcast, but if you do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, God bless all of, you know, the men who date women who are about to turn 30 because you (laughs) you guys should be given some sort of prize or award for enduring, um, enduring that, you know, enduring that, that frenzied, um, that frenzied state. And maybe it's just a New York city thing. I don't know. Maybe some of your listeners can share, but probably LA
0: too, to be honest,
1: (laughs) um but me and my girlfriends who are all turning 30 the ones who you know were engaged or getting married just really felt like they had everything like figured out I was trying to give us all like a bunch of married advice I'm like dude, you've been married for like four days right <laughs> yeah. And then for all of us who were not yet married it was like oh I'm about to turn 30 of course, this person that I'm sharing a bed with is clearly going to be the person whom I'm supposed to get married to, right? Okay. That was a, the only criteria, actually had nothing to do with the with my boyfriend at the time. It was, I'm turning 30, <laughs> so I need to be married now, right? Yeah. Yep. And so what you find is that like, what is that all about? You know, let's give my 29-year-old self a nice big hug, but it was a little bit, you know, looking back on it, it's like, wow, you know, this search for happiness and all this indoctrination that we're, that we subscribe to, you know, in the world of, you know, these things have to happen at certain times. It really begins to mess with us sometimes. And, um, you know, when we come to relationships from a much more expansive state, you know, to use your word, like big perspective, it's like, I'm already fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. And not in a like, you know, I'm an independent woman. Yeah, (laughs) Like I want to pay my own bills kind of way, but like, no, I feel really, really good. And I am curious to see what we can do together at
0: in a partnership to deliver our collective bliss to change the world. Yes. And that is, it's kind of like we were talking about before, like when you're talking about your personal, um, health and personal experience of the world when you start to remove the stress there's this expansiveness that occurs there's more possibility suddenly like you have the capacity to to create and to learn and to explore more than just like surviving the day-to-day and I think the same is true in relationships when you remove that pressure and the stress and the societal narratives of like what boxes you should be checking by when then you all of a sudden have this expansiveness of like what do I really want The container of relationship to be in my life? What do I want it to serve? And, and, and yeah, what do I want it to contribute? Not just to my life personally, but to the greater good to the collective. And that is so
1: cool. (laughs) And you know what? Reducing stress, especially through meditation helps with better Mm. communication.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah.
1: You know, it's like when two stressed, stressed out people are you know, have a disagreement, right? It's basically like, okay, I'm way too tired, way, you know, way too, um, you know, fatigued in my day. I have no adaptation energy to meet this conversation. So you have to adapt to what it is that I'm thinking about. And guess what? The other person who's probably also had a really long day and also equally as frazzled is like, wait, I don't have any energy to properly communicate either. And so, we kind of just settle for, you know, this really subpar way of communicating where we use our words sometimes to defend and to make contrast instead of looking for unity. And this is what I find so much in, um, you know, a lot of the work and a lot of the mentoring that I do, which is, you know, and for meditators as well as that, you know, even when the stress is gone, there's sometimes we, you know, have built up these kind of um, not great communication habits over the course of, you know, our lives. And, you know, one thing that we do know is that when we begin to work on our communication from the level of bliss, and we use communication for unity, um, versus to protect and defend, um, you know, relationships really, really transform. And not necessarily do, do I mean that every relationship ends in a fairy tale ending, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not promising that practicing Vedic meditation is going to, you know, make every relationship that we're currently in just turn magical all the time. But what I will say. Is that when we release the stress, every communication, even if it doesn't result in, you know, happily ever ever after, will result in common understanding and greater love between the two people.
0: Yeah, because the communication that occurs might, like you said, it might not lead to fairy tale ending with that person, but it might result in. That deeper understanding of each other and the realization that oh maybe we don't want the same things in relationship and and maybe that's okay it doesn't make the love that we shared any less special.
1: Yeah, and you know my teacher Tom Knowles has this great saying and he said you know no two no two people ever broke up because they were in a happy relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> You know, so you know this whole idea of like, oh, we were so happy. It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> one of the two people is—we're definitely not happy because no two people ever break up because they're so happy together.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it play out that way.
1: <laughs> and you know, this whole thing about fairy tale endings is, you know, and again, building on this idea of perspective is that if it doesn't feel good right now, you know, it means that the story's not yet over, mm. right? And, you know, we have this idea that, you know, we want to close every chapter in our life in the way that we want to close the chapter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we know is that um, every chapter begins to open up, you know, the possibilities of that next rebirth in our life. And so if it doesn't feel okay right now, it's because the story is not over yet. I you love know? that
0: perspective. Yeah.
1: It's, yeah. There's more to the story. So, you know, as they say, watch the space, <laughs> watch this story, you know, watch for the comeback. There's always that next iteration of, of beauty and evolution in our lives.
0: Yeah. And then tying it back to what you said before, just reminding yourself that evolution is all that's ever happening that can hopefully provide some, some solace and comfort in those moments where, you know, if you're going through a breakup or relationships are feeling difficult, that in somehow, some way, this is contributing to your evolution and the greater evolution. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And also, you know, and this might be the harder question to ask, especially in the moments when you're like (laughs) feeling the sadness of a breakup, but it's like, to what extent, you know, to what extent is this sadness, you know, hitched on this idea that I can't be happy if I'm not with this person. Yeah. And if I'm feeling that way, then we really want to examine why it is. That's the case. And we want to look into you know, perhaps building in some tools that can offer us that, you know, happiness from within.
0: Right. Because I think a lot of people are conditioned to to think that there is just one person out there who can make them happy. And certainly when you fall in love with somebody and when you're in kind of wrapped up in that particular type of, of bliss in a relationship, it can feel that way. Like, oh my gosh, this is the only person ever who can, who can make yeah. me feel this way obviously reality is that's that's not true it's something that we we source and create for ourselves and then can share with with other people yeah Yeah.
1: sometimes people ask me they're like Susan do you believe in soulmates is there that one okay that was my next question is like is there a
0: Vedic perspective on soulmates
1: (laughs) well you know it's our highest self Mm -hmm. it's our highest self I mean in terms of like the actual relating you know with partners you know there's I think we'll go through different phases in our life where there will be that one person for us who can bring about our greatest evolution and coming together. There can be a lot of unity and, um, you know, collective fulfillment that we can bring out in the world. But, you know, the person that you want to fall in love with over and over and over again, you know, is yourself. It's your, it's your highest, most evolved version of yourself. And I know we've talked about this before, Megan, but, you know, this idea of like, you know, we think that that's somebody else that, you know, is giving their love to us. Right. It's like, Oh, I feel love because that person is out there and I love them. And how can I ever experience that love if it's not with that person? But if we were to really get like really, you know, meta with the experience of love. And next time you feel elated about anything, including my ice matcha latte that I'm still (laughs) savoring right now as we're talking, it's like, when you feel that joy and you feel that bliss, whether it's for, you know, a matcha latte, whether it's, you know, for your pet, whether it's for, you know, a family member or a romantic partner and you feel that wave of love and bliss, just check in with yourself to see, like, where is it actually coming from? You know, where is it coming from? Is it actually this tangible thing that's getting transferred from one person to another? Or is that person merely triggering that feeling of bliss from deep inside you? Yeah. Right. And, you know, when my teacher Tom shared with me this technique, because, you know, a big part of the Vedic worldview is that all love is directed to the self. There is no love out there that you can import (laughs) into yourself. And so the love to the love that you can experience is to the degree that you've released your stress to be able to tap into that infinite field, of love and fulfillment. And so, you know, when something is really, you know, tickling you in terms of tickling and stirring that bliss, we can actually feel it coming from deep within ourselves. And I know it sounds totally crazy sometimes to even really think about it, but you know, that's how we can start to build and flex that knowingness that all this love comes from within. Even though we can have mirrors of it and people who might say something really funny that makes us laugh. But again, you know, it's not that joke that is causing that bliss. It's our own consciousness state and access to that bliss deep down inside that's getting stirred from their,
0: their trigger. And would you say that the experiences of bliss and the experience of love are the same thing or very similar? the experience of love from
1: my perspective and this is a great question is the experience of unity of some of of some kind right mm-hmm. feeling like there is a coming together of things which is why like embraces feel good mm, you yeah. know which is why you know when we are intimate with a partner it feels so special You know, there's always this embrace and this unity and this return of, oh, yes, you know, I am one with everything. Mm -hmm. And when we live our lives with so much diversity and looking for contrast, you know, every time that we're concentrating on something in our mind, we are by default excluding everything else that's on our mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Everything that we're trying to pay, every time we're trying to pay attention to something, it's at the expense of excluding everything else. So we live in a life of contrast. And so when we finally have that moment of unity especially with a romantic partner, it can feel really delicious, you know, that feeling of of unification. And you know, that feeling of bliss that we have deep down inside is a form, you know, of of unification as well, but I would ex- I would describe it more as that foundational state of of unity as a baseline. You know, Mm. love is like that return to unity and that's why it feels so great. (laughs) You know, whenever I think about, you know, my experience of life, Sometimes when I think back on how how tough life used to be, it makes the experience of now like even more delicious. Yeah, <laughs> that contrast, absolutely. Yeah. And so that feeling of love, especially with a romantic partner, it does feel so nourishing because it does serve as such a big contrast. Um, but that blissful state is one in which we're beginning to homogenize that feeling of totality and unity as our backdrop of life.
0: Mm. That's so powerful. And there are about a million more questions <laughs> I want to ask you on this subject, but I want to be mindful of your time and listeners time so that it's not a five hour episode, even though yes. I would love that. <laughs>
1: but we'll, we'll definitely we have ha- to have
0: you back. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we'll dive re- deeper. We'll record a part two. I would love that. Sure. And I think everybody listening um, would, would echo that as well. And one of the last questions that I love to ask everybody who comes on the show is besides Vedic meditation, of course, do you have a daily practice or wellness habit can be mind, body, spirit, anything that you love that you kind of swear by and is one of your go-tos?
1: Yes. So I will share with you like, the things that I do in the first hour of my day,
0: perfect.
1: Because <laughs> I feel like you know, post like during the lockdown, I was really able to like refine it. Oh and, yeah, <laughs> and really feel like it does a lot for me. So you know, my husband um, Pete, who um, who I I met a few years ago. And I think we, we got married just before COVID. He always says some, you know, he always asks me if, you know, like, if I'm feeling like a little bit irritable, he's like, he's like, have you meditated? (laughs) Have you taken a shower? (laughs) You know, have you had your breakfast and have you had your chai, right? My little like kick of caffeine in the morning. So what I do in the morning is, you know, I always make sure that I wake up. Um, either with the sunrise or before the sunrise, because from an Ayurvedic perspective, it's really, really powerful to begin your day um, as the sun, you know, begins to grace, you know, whatever part of the world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And so I'll wake up, either I'll set an alarm or, you know, I'll wake up naturally with the sun. And the first thing that I'll do is I'll do a Surya Namaskar. Um, you know, towards the sun. So I can really begin to, you know, align myself with, with that, with the patterns of nature and the impulses of nature. And a traditional way to do that is to start by chanting the Gayatri Mantra, which, you know, if you've been to a yoga class or yoga retreat or done yoga teacher training, you've likely, um, you've likely learned that before, but it is, you um, it is a chant that you say to the sun to basically say, Hey, I know you're there for me every single day, <laughs> even if I can't see you behind the clouds Yeah, <laughs> you know, thank you for offering me this, this beautiful energy that, you know, I'll be cherishing for the day. And then I do my Surya Namaskar and then I'll sit for a meditation, my 20 minute Vedic meditation, and I'll roll straight into, um, an Abhyanga oil massage, mm. which, I don't do that every day, but four or five times a week, we definitely prioritize. And it's another really great way to start the day um, and to really begin to nourish our bodies from a very deep level to be really resilient and adaptable for the rest of the day. And then the shower, the breakfast, and then the chai. (laughs) That is
0: such an amazing morning routine i yeah. i and i love that pete helps hold you accountable to it on the mornings where he's like mm, i don't know if she's done all her things yet <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's really helpful it's really really helpful yeah and <laughs> definitely in our next chat we'll have to dive deeper into um more of the ayurvedic practices because i know that's obviously something that you are very well versed in and abhyanka mm. being one of them there's so many so many benefits to all yes of absolutely um, but thank you for sharing that little window into your day. Aw, thanks, Megan. It's been such a joy. Yeah. And where can people find you if they want to learn to meditate, if they want to be, uh, you know, just a part of your, your community? You share so many wonderful things in your newsletter and beyond. So I'll I'll let you share what's relevant for you right now. Yes.
1: So I teach Vedic meditation courses um, once a month in Los Angeles, in New York city, as well as in Austin. And to find out more, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called the weekly wisdom. Um, And you can sign on at meditate with Susan.com.
0: Amazing. And yeah, for everybody listening, I highly recommend that you subscribe because it's basically like all of the amazing, little nuggets and pearls of wisdom that that Susan shared today. She shares those every week in her newsletter and I always find so much pleasure and benefit and benefit in reading them.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This has yeah. been fun. We'll do yeah, it again thank soon. You.
0: I really appreciate you coming on to chat and um, for everybody listening, I, uh, if you know anybody who who might benefit from hearing um, Susan's story, hearing about Vedic meditation, any of the things, please pass this episode along to them. And thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Susan, for coming on. And until next time, I hope everybody has a happy, healthy, and love-filled day.